Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 47, A Parting of the Ways. Last week, we left off with the abrupt cancellation of the national non-cooperation movement, and Gandhi having been arrested. The decision to call everything off had come just as tensions were really starting to boil over. What with that little incident involving the 22 burned-alive cops, and also not to mention the abuses by the authorities which set off that incident in the first place. The abruptness caused a stir because the decision had been Gandhi's alone, without the input of anyone else. On one hand, it showed the extent of his influence that the protests petered out on his command. But on the other hand, the entire rest of the leadership still wanted to keep it going. Gandhi caused a lot of resentment among his Hindu allies in the Congress, and even more among the Muslim leadership. They had joined in based on the perceived assault on the Caliph and Islam in general by the British. Sure, nonviolence had been going out the window, but they were winning. The authorities were getting nervous, and the people were getting more and more on board with dissolving the Raj. Every pent-up emotion over the food shortages and price hikes were spilling out into the open, something that Gandhi himself had encouraged when he declared that they would achieve self-rule, or Swaraj, in a matter of a year. People had gotten invested. Now they were being told it was over. Go home. It is certainly true that Gandhi had emphasized the nonviolent aspect of the movement to everyone, and initially people were with him on that, and him calling everything off once the principles of Satyagraha had been violated was certainly him sticking to his metaphorical guns. But now he was stuck in jail, soon to be sentenced to a six-year spell, uh, but only serving two due to an appendicitis operation, cutting his stay short. Regardless of the length of his stay in jail, the coalition of the past two years fell apart. The caliphate movement amongst the Muslim community dissolved when the Turkish Republic declared the former caliph had voluntarily abdicated. Suddenly, the centuries-old beacon of spiritual loyalty had gone out, and with no prospect of replacing it, Muslims everywhere had to begrudgingly move on. And taking stock of their position after the failed attempt at asserting Swaraj, they didn't see much of a future in working with their Hindu neighbors. Gandhi had been the Hindu leader who had most openly embraced them, had listened to their concerns, and made them his own. But they had not sworn loyalty to him or his methods, and when he left them hanging midway into what could potentially have been a revolution, they took it as an example of Hindu treachery, and resolved to go their own way from now on. All the old fears of Hindus only looking out for other Hindus and using their numerical advantage to cut out Muslims surge back with a vengeance. Communal riots would become more commonplace in the years following, and there wasn't leadership on either side eager enough or influential enough to bridge the gap and make a peace. Gandhi would definitely still try to unite the two groups once he was back on the scene, but it would never pan out, and from now on, the two communities would only become increasingly at odds. Politically, the rest of the 20s in India were years of fragmentation and seeming aimlessness. The Indian National Congress saw a freefall in membership, and those that did remain broke down into squabbling factions. The groups would endlessly bicker with each other over continuing non-cooperation or working within the new legislature laws, but could not reach consensus to move forward. As a result of that internal weakness, the national leadership found it impossible to control local politics the way Gandhi had been able to. And even though Gandhi himself was in prison for only two years, 
Once released, he withdrew himself from political affairs. He stuck to developing his philosophy and working on more ground-level activism, with some in Congress speculating that he was withdrawing from life in the national spotlight. That wasn't true, of course, but it would only be towards the end of the decade that he started making moves again. The Muslim League wasn't much better off. The Caliphate movement had been a unifying force, and with it being gone, there were only local interests in play as driving forces. A man named Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who had recently ditched out on the Congress due to his stance that Satyagraha principles were impractical, tried to add an all-India element to the League's politics, but was in for a frustrating uphill battle, which would see him change his politics before changing that of other Muslims. The British, on the other hand, moved as a unit once the unrest had abated. They stuck to their reforms and started integrating Indians into the administration, but again only in roles deemed non-threatening to the Raj. It was made clear that Indians were to participate in governing, to lend it the legitimacy of a quote-unquote responsible government, but not as a means for eventual autonomy. In addition, the princely states were given a court as part of the Montford reforms, and while the body was powerless, it did actually get the princes talking to each other, and their primary interest was, as usual, to moderate the revolutionary feelings sweeping the country to preserve their own positions. The Indian army was also kept staffed with overwhelmingly British officers leading it. While native Indians did start to slowly get commissions as officers, they were far and few between. It was expected that the officer corps would be half Indian only by 1952. So the state would still hold a tight grip on how violence could be applied. The Raj government also took steps to slow economic reforms that might threaten the interests of British businesses operating in India. It is worth pointing out, though, that a number of these protectionist measures ran counter with the desires of the government in London. In 1919, there was an agreement that the government in Delhi would run its affairs without direct interference from home. This isn't to say that India was de facto autonomous. The Viceroy and the European part of the state apparatus always operated with an eye towards preserving British rule and all the benefits to the mother country that went with it. Instead, they acted as they thought best, as men on the ground in India, which was just as well because the relationship between the Raj and Britain was changing in the 20s. You might remember that by the early 20s, the UK was racked by economic crisis, and while India was a vital place to invest money, it was a declining opportunity as money in the UK tended to stick with investments closer to home more and more. Back in the previous UK series, I talked about how the economy on the home islands was shifting to more advanced consumer goods and chemical-based products. While India certainly still bought up British goods, they were mostly from older industries like clothing and steel. For the emerging new British industries, India wasn't really a viable market for them. Then there was the fact that the British share of business in those older industries was also declining in India. Due to World War I, the British for years mostly stopped exporting consumer goods, contributing to those price hikes I talked about previously. Other nations saw this golden opportunity and jumped right into the Indian market, and the Japanese especially were active in muscling in on the textile market. Even in financing, India was breaking away from the UK. The Raj and private enterprises within it had previously taken out loans from London banks using pounds. That, too, was on the decline as India expanded its own banking network, and more and more financing was done domestically using rupees. 
One of the biggest changes was in how India operated as the eastern base for the empire. It's true that it remained the vital piece in the imperial jigsaw, but it could no longer be taken for granted. The expense of the war years had taken a terrible toll on the Raja's finances, and they now had to put their foot down that the Indian army would not be available every time there was some crisis out in the extremities of the empire. This was especially true for restive conquests like the new Middle Eastern mandates. And with revolution boiling over back at home, the Viceroy was reluctant to commit the subcontinent's army to what was increasingly seen as foreign police actions by the Indians themselves. This might not seem like an especially huge deal during peacetime, as there were no pending enemies on the horizon and the British were expected to handle internal threats on their own. But now the British found themselves without their ace up the sleeve. The Indian army had always been the spearhead in the East, and now its use was restricted. The UK itself had demobilized and only had a small army to go around, and the other colonies couldn't be expected to field formations as large as India offered. Now British policy within their empire would have to operate with a light touch and on a shoestring budget, as now the British army was thinly spread across the entire globe, which will have consequences later on down the road, and would also impact British decision-making during these years. And with India and the UK starting their slow but steady drift apart, what was life looking like for normal Indians? Well, it was getting worse, to say the least. The population increases I talked about last episode were continuing and the amount of land under cultivation was not keeping up. The expansion of industrial jobs provided some outlet, but not enough, and only at a miserably subsistence level. All through the decade, industrial workers would be faced with massive pay cuts, as the Raj's economic doldrums extended past World War I. In the city of Ahmedabad, in April 1923, for example, textile workers saw a 20% pay cut, Unions strained to get properly organized in the face of hostile management, even among fellow Indians. There were embryonic communist groups within the country. However, they were scattered across urban centers and could never make effective inroads in the countryside. And given the privileged positions of the political class, there wasn't anybody rallying the workers. They were simply left to strike, sometimes in great numbers, approaching 150,000 like the ones in Bombay in 1924 and 25 but always on their own and in isolation. Gandhi's Satyagraha was of little help to them, as it was vague when it came to social reforms. Sure, the philosophy called for a reversion to a more self-sufficient, communal lifestyle, but it did not call for a rebalancing of roles among management and worker, which in practice meant that even Gandhi declined to address the concerns of industrial workers. Indeed, in 1925, he advised those striking textile workers in Ahmedabad not to embarrass their masters and get back to work. Yeah, not a lot of opportunity for change in the factories, which caused no small amount of disillusionment. In the countryside, things weren't much more pleasant. India was a big place and still had a lot of areas where communication left something to be desired. So when Gandhi called off the non-cooperation campaign, a number of areas all across the country were either slow in getting the memo or weren't formally beholden enough to stop resistance efforts. One notable example was that of Aluri Sitarama Raju, who led a kind of guerrilla movement in the southeast of the country. Striking out from bases in the hills, he led numerous attacks on local police forces, forcing the British to deploy a mixed force of special police and military units. 
He took care not to harm actual Indians, and would abandon attacks on the British when he felt he would also put their lives at risk. One notable example was when a small column of Raj police were observed in September 1922. Raju allowed the Indian forward elements to pass, while his men waited in ambush for the British, whereupon they fired and killed two officers. This went on for another year and a half, until his luck ran out on May 6, 1924, and he was finally captured. The British executed him on the spot, and later reported that he had tried to run away once captured. Classic cop move. By and large, the peasantry recognized that the national change they had been hoping for really wasn't coming anytime soon, and so they started turning their attentions to local reforms, which, given the disarray of national leadership, was probably their most viable way to go. The peasants, though, ran into the same issues as their urban counterparts. Their local political leadership was already invested in the status quo, and since nothing was happening on the national level, saw no reason to rock the boat. One of the core grievances was with the big landholders renting out farmland at ruinous prices. This caused increased calls to break up estates and parcel them out to regular farmers. These big landholders, called Zamindari in India, were typically the ones actually represented in the Congress, and were pretty resistant to handing over the land that gave them their power. Despite how divided the Congress had become during the 20s, all the factions were in agreement that their economic interests would continue to be looked after. This understandably created a great deal of bitterness among the rural activists, trying to lessen the misery that was predominant in the countryside. Despite all the legislative reforms, food was still scarce and rents of the land were still high, which were tensions that would not be getting resolved anytime soon. All this social and political activity, scattered as it was, caused a major weakness of the all-India movement up to this point begin to lessen somewhat. For decades, the question of who an Indian was and what their nation should look like was a question primarily for the educated and well-off. Now that problems were escalating, this conversation was being spread to previously unengaged sections of the population. India was never going to secure its true independence via the machinations of a thin band of the nation's elites, especially when that leadership had so much invested into the Raj. But now there was increasing activity from all segments of society, not yet an overwhelming amount, but enough that the British were under constant pressure. And that pressure during the 20s was primarily directed at only local authorities, but it was there nevertheless. The questions of what was India and what was an Indian still definitely remained, and the division among groups was still very much there. But most had, by and large, figured out who weren't Indians and who didn't belong to an Indian nation, and that was the British. For the Raj government, there wasn't really a good answer to turning back the clock and stabilizing British rule like it had been in the old days. The British certainly thought of themselves as benign, always acting in the best long-term interests of both India and the UK. However, when pressed to listen more closely to native concerns and demands, they declined and stuck to their belief that they knew best. But they weren't fools and knew how their regime was becoming increasingly unpopular. The most common tactic to try and maintain their position was going back to the divide-and-conquer well again. Given the Hindu-Muslim split, there were at least options there, and the British beat the drum constantly to the Muslims that if they were to become independent, they would trade a distant, light rule for a much closer and heavier one. Among Hindus, they approached communities of those born into the untouchable caste 
and warned them, too, that if they were to leave, the new elite would be highborn Hindus. British might not be perfect rulers, but at least they didn't see the lower castes as inherently inferior. And of course, the princes were empowered to maintain their individual rule by any means necessary. And for most of the decade, they probably thought their efforts mostly successful as the big national groups were unable to organize another campaign against them. So the British might be forgiven for thinking themselves in a stronger position than they actually were by 1928. It was then that a commission sent from the UK consisting of members of British Parliament arrived in India to review and tweak the Montford reforms now that they were nearing the 10-year mark. This was built into the 1919 reforms. However, the composition of the commission was not. Remarkably, for a body that would influence so much on how India would be governed moving forward, there were no actual Indians among them. This was a slap in the face to all Indians and did a great deal to galvanize not just the factions in the Congress and League, but also for a tantalizing moment bridged many of the ill-will between the two organizations as well. Jinnah, as part of the League, joined with the leadership of the Congress, and while protesting the composition of the Commission, again called for India to get self-governing dominion status. This was the position of the moderates in both camps, and when the British rejected it out of hand, it signaled that moderation still wasn't going to work out. Just to let you know, the Commission's deliberations wouldn't be concluded for years, and the report itself not published until May 1930. So it's going to be a background thing as the Indians girded themselves for a new struggle. Unfortunately, much of that struggle was going to be against each other. Jinnah had been hard at work trying to make a compromise with the Congress between Muslims and Hindus that would split political power in an agreeable fashion since early 1927. His proposal was at the provincial level to dole out a set number of seats to each minority to ensure they had a guaranteed voice in the governance. In addition, some of the larger provinces with a concentrated Muslim minority would be broken up to have smaller spin-offs so as to create new provinces with Muslim majorities. From there, the Muslim community could work with the Hindu-dominated Congress to get on with the business of creating a unified India as a dominion. The empowerment of the Muslim community at the expense of making Hindu provinces smaller, might seem like a biased deal, but Jinnah was dealing with some fairly testy League members, and this was the only way he was going to get even a decent majority to back his unity scheme. The problem among the Congress was that at this point tensions between the two faiths had really gone too far. Hindu nationalists stonewalled the attempts of the Congress's leadership, headed by Motilal Nehru, father of the much more famous Jawaharlal, and forced him to counter her offer with smaller Muslim shares in the legislatures and fewer new provinces than Jinnah had proposed. It would leave the balance of power weighted heavily in favor of the Hindus. The elder Nehru understood that this offer would not fly with the League, and that it was probably intended to not fly with the League, but to maintain his own position in the Congress, that's what he had to use as his bargaining stance. Jinnah responded by withdrawing his offer, and instead he published his own 14 points, a set of conditions by which Hindus could be expected to agree to as the price of Muslim cooperation. It was mostly a collection of concessions he had already asked for, and was left as an open offer that the Congress could pick up at a later time when they came around. Jinnah probably knew, though, that the Congress was never going to come around, and described this moment in retrospect as a parting of the ways. The price for Muslim participation in a unified All-India movement was a federalization of the state 
and empowered Muslim communities on a regional level. By this time, though, Hindu nationalism refused the idea of such devolution of power. This would be an issue with the Congress. They were now set to replace the Raj instead of overthrowing it, however much they tried to hide or deflect from this fact. The Congress turned around and published their own counter-vision, called to the Nehru Report, as Motilal Nehru was the chair of the commission that created it. The report included an implicit rejection of Jenna's cooperation offer, as it called for the most political power to continue to be vested at the national level, and no distinctions made at the local level for minority faiths. It set forth a basic constitution as well, while specifying that India would remain within the empire as a dominion. This last bit grated on the nerves of the upcoming generation of Hindu-Indian leaders who advocated for a more radical break with the British. The premier leaders among this youthful segment were Jawaharlal Nehru, whose more radical tendencies caused his father no small amount of stress, and Subhas Chandra Bose, who was a much more militant figure and completely at odds with the Satyagraha image. While the two were often rivals, they worked together to pressure Motilal Nehru to strengthen the edge on his report calling for independence. For the younger pair, not only was a clean break with the UK needed, but a free India needed to position itself as an active opponent of imperialism elsewhere, too, which sent the older leadership into a tiff as the younger leaders were very public about these desires. Case in point, a time when the younger Nehru hijacked a sparsely attended Congress meeting in December 1927 to pass a resolution calling for complete independence. This was swatted down immediately, but Gandhi himself had to have a sit-down with Jawaharlal to try and convince him to cool it a little. Eventually, a compromise was reached among the factions, mainly owing to Gandhi coming back onto the national scene. The agreement secured was that the elder Nehru's moderate report would be presented to the British, and if not accepted as the plan of action for the future, they would launch another campaign of non-cooperation, this time gunning for total independence from the UK. Bose and the younger Nehru still tried to force through a measure to go for complete independence immediately, but their supporters shifted in enough numbers for the compromise to go through. Gandhi himself hoped the British would see reason, as he was not enthused for a non-cooperation campaign at that particular moment. He still had his national profile and his followers, but many more leaders had risen to prominence in his political absence. But these were urban workers and educated youth like Bose and Nehru. These were not Gandhi's people, and he still wanted any campaign to stick to Satyagraha principles. He understood he was unlikely to control what the Congress might unleash. Gandhi might have been semi-retired for a bit, but he understood the powder keg India had built into. For a moment, it appeared as if things might not have to come to all that. The Viceroy at the time, Lord Irwin, approached the Congress on October 31, 1929, which was very close to the Congress's deadline. He proposed a roundtable conference between the British and Indians to hash out a deal after the Simon Commission had presented its recommendations. The Congress leaders accepted on the grounds that the Dominion request be accepted as a thing that was actually happening and being implemented, and that the majority of the representatives would be from the Congress. Irwin couldn't go this far and declined to meet after all on December 23rd. For the next two months, Congress would ready itself for the Satyagraha campaign to come. And on that note, that's where I'll leave off for India, right on the cusp of another big break, and right as the depression tsunami starts bearing down. The people of India did not really have a direct involvement in making or breaking world peace, but they did have an indirect influence. 
the resources of India had helped make the British Empire. But once the empire overextended itself, the Indian people understandably started asserting themselves, both politically and economically. As a result, Britain lost a number of tools it used to maintain itself as a world power, and moreover started becoming distracted with disturbances coming from the Raj. For all the changed circumstances over the 20s, India was still the fixation of the empire, and problems there coupled with thin resources for the rest of the colonies meant that the British were often playing defense within its own empire instead of pushing forward and creating lasting settlements in the world. The lurching from crisis to crisis displayed by the UK in their miniseries is depressingly mirrored here, too. And this is just one corner of the empire. Next week, we'll check in on the other possessions and outposts of the British Empire. This'll be a quicker overview, as individually they do not share near the same importance as India. But taking in the scope of British interest will be helpful to demonstrate the scale of concerns that burdened the relatively small island nation. See you next time, and as always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 